text for us is Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. So before we get into the text for today, we have to set it in its context because that is vital to understanding what's going on in the end of Luke chapter 9. Um, most of the commentators, and particularly the commentator I most trust as I've been studying this text, say that in, uh, in chapter 9, verse 51, we have sort of the pivot point of the entire gospel of Luke. Up to that point, Luke has been trying to convey to you who is Jesus? Why should you care who Jesus is? And it is at this point where the Bible says that Jesus resolutely set out toward Jerusalem that the, the tone of the gospel starts to shift. It shifts to not who is Jesus, but what is Jesus here to do? And what does that mean for us? So this text that we just read is on the cusp of the second part of Luke's gospel, where it is, it is challenging us to see what Jesus is here to do and what that means for us. In a sense, you could think of the two parts of Luke's gospel this way. There's like the theoretical part. Here are the truths. Here are the principles. And the second part is the practical part. How does this play out? And so in the same way, we're going to look at today's text, which is thematically the same as the text that we studied last week. It's about the cost of discipleship. And think of it in those same terms. Last week was theoretical. Here is what the cost of discipleship is. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This week is the practical application. What does that look like as it starts to infiltrate your life? Or maybe to say it differently, it's like going to the store and seeing the cost of an item that you might want to buy. The cost is the objective fact. Here's what it is. The practical application is, is that worth it to me? Do I have the necessary resources and do I want to spend them on that? That's what we're working out today. So what I want to do today is walk back through the text because there's a number of things that I think are culturally contextual that we might not immediately pick up as we read the text, and then I want to make a couple application points for you. Um, if you didn't get a chance to grab a note sheet, maybe now would be a good time to do that if you want to take notes on the sermon. The text breaks into three interactions that Jesus has with three different people, um, so walk through each of those individually. The first interaction is with a man who comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. There's obviously a very enthusiastic man. He initiates the conversation with Jesus. He comes up to Jesus and says, I'm going to go wherever you go. He's obviously excited about what Jesus is doing. We don't know exactly why. Probably has heard things that Jesus has done, maybe even seen some things that Jesus has done. And so he wants to come along with Jesus. But Jesus immediately pours what seems to us to be a bucket of cold water on this man and says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I have no home, right? A fox has a place to go to rest at the end of the day. A bird has a nest to call its home. But the son of man, me, I don't have a place to go. 
Now, in their culture, poverty was common, as common as it might be today, but homelessness was nowhere near as common. And that was because uh, families tended to be bigger, and they all tended to live in the same area, right? So if you were unable to get a house for yourself, you would have family in the area who would usually take you in. It wasn't common to see people just living out on the streets, even if they were particularly poor financially. So Jesus isn't making a point about his poverty, although it is true that Jesus did not have many physical possessions when he lived on this earth. He's making a point about his relationships with other people. He's saying, I don't have the same type of biological kin that the average person has. I don't fit. I don't have a place where people will naturally just bring me in. And this makes sense if you go back to chapter 8 of Luke, which we studied a few weeks ago, where Jesus says, my mother and my brothers, my family, my kin, are those who hear God's word and produce it. In other words, my biological family is secondary to those who believe the gospel. And because of that, we don't fit in with the normal culture. This man comes to Jesus and he has this excitement. He has this enthusiasm. I will go with you wherever you want, wherever you go. And, and Jesus says to him, cool your jets, buddy. If you really want to go where I'm going, I'm going to a place where I don't fit in. And neither will you. You will be like you are part of a different culture, like you speak a different language, that you are going a different place. You may not have the same type of, of family relationships or, or social relationships that you would have otherwise because of what you believe, because of who you follow. So then, we have an interaction with a second man. This time, Jesus initiates the conversation with the man. He says, follow me. And the man says, okay, Lord, well, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting uh, thing because I think what we immediately think is, oh, well, his father has just died and he has to bury him, but that's almost certainly not the case. Because remember, in their culture, if you were interacting with a dead body, if you were in anywhere close to it, you were unclean ceremonially. And so if his father had just died, he would not be in polite company, especially around a rabbi. So what the commentators will say is that's probably not the case. It's probably one of two options, and you can believe whichever one you want. They both work, although I'll tell you which one I think is probably more true. Uh, the first option is that uh, this man's father was getting close to death. And part of his family responsibilities was that he was going to have to take care of his father's body after his father died. And so he's saying, let me wait a little while longer until my father dies and then I will bury him. I think more likely, though, is a custom that they had about burial. When a person would die in a family, they would bury the body in the family tomb. But then a year later, the oldest son would come back to that tomb, open the tomb. All the flesh would have rotted off the bones and he would take the bones and he would put them in an ossuary. An ossuary was like a little box, like you can see on the screen, which would contain all the bones of all the family members who had died. And this was mostly a space-saving practice because it was a place where everybody wanted to keep their bodies because they had this sense that, that there was going to be a significance to Jerusalem at the end of the world, right? And so they all wanted to kind of resurrect in the same place. And so they would compact all of their bodies uh, into these little ossuaries so that they could all resurrect on the last day. So more than likely, what's happening is this man says, "Father, or, let me go bury my father. What he means is, uh, my father is dead, but I have to wait a year in order to go back and get his bones and put them in the ossuary, and then I can go. Now, regardless of which of those you like better, the point is still the same. Because what, what he says is, I need to do this first. 
Now, first is a a tough word for us because we use the word first differently depending on how we're speaking. On the one hand, we can use the word first in a sequence, right? English, we can say this, first, second, third, right? There's a race and somebody comes in first and the person who comes behind them is in second. There's a sequence to how we use these words. But there's another way that we use the word first, and that is first in the sense of priority, right? So we would say maybe family comes first. That doesn't mean that every single moment of my life I am first doing something for my family, but it does mean that in my priority structure, this is the most important thing to me. Now we use the word first in both of those as English speakers, but in Greek, the word actually shifts depending on how you're using it. First in a sequence is protos, or you can hear like um, protagonist, right, is in that word. Uh, first in priority is protone. So protos versus protone, and this is protone, this is first in priority. So what the man says to Jesus is not, let me do this and then I'll do this. He says, I want to do that, but this is more important. You understand the difference? Now Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, which is kind of an enigmatic way of talking, right? We, we don't really hear people talk this way. So what does he mean by this? Well, at first he can't mean that physically dead people should bury physically dead people, right? That is literally impossible. So what most of the commentators will say is that he is, he's saying spiritually dead people, those people who do not believe in the gospel, they should take care of the dead bodies, so that the people who do believe the gospel can go on proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to more people who still have the chance to believe it and be saved. And I think that's a fine way to understand the text, and if that's how you understand it, I'm okay with that. I want to nuance it a little bit, though, because that that at least gives the impression that Jesus is like anti-funerals, that he doesn't really care about funerals. He's like, you just figure out the dead bodies later. We got a bigger mission. Um, Jesus goes to funerals, Jesus cares about funerals, so I don't think we can really understand it totally that way. What is probably more what Jesus is getting at with this statement is, uh, if you love something that is dying more than me, who is living, then you will die with that thing. But if you love something that is dying more than you love me, who is living, then you will die with that thing. So he's saying this is a priority question, right? Which fits with the man's excuse first. More importantly, let me bury my father. Then we finally have the third man who Jesus interacts with. Still another man says to him, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Um, And Jesus says to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Which, at least at first, seems to us to be pretty similar to the last guy, right? You have a following, but then an excuse, and it's the same word, proton, first, more importantly, let me do this. And then Jesus says there's this problem with it. Um, And so we might be tempted to think, oh, it's kind of the same interaction. but, But actually something bigger is going on here if you know your Old Testament, Because this interaction is eerily similar to something that happened in the Old Testament with a completely different result. 1 Kings 19 is the call of Elisha. So you remember the Old Testament prophet Elijah gives his mantle to the next prophet, Elisha. And the calling of Elisha is really interesting. I'll read it for you here from 1 Kings 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he says, and then I will come with you. 
Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? This is kind of a Hebrewism for like how we might say no problem in English. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So eerily similar, right? Elijah calls Elisha and Elisha says, hey, can I go kiss my parents goodbye? (laughs) Which is exactly what this man said to Jesus. And Jesus' answer even seems that he understands the similarity because he uses an illustration of plowing with oxen when Elisha was plowing with oxen, right? No one who plows and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And yet you can see the, the results are completely different, right? Elisha's case, Elisha gets to go on with Elijah. He becomes the prophet. And in Jesus' case with this other man, he doesn't follow him. So what's the difference? Jesus is making a profound point about the uh, nature of the call into discipleship. He is saying that the call to discipleship is of a greater degree than the call into public ministry. So think about Elisha, right? Elijah is calling Elisha to be a prophet, to be a public minister of the gospel, to be maybe something close to what we would think of as a pastor today. This man who's coming up to Jesus is being called into discipleship. And in the case of being called into public ministry, it's not that big of a deal to go back and say goodbye to your parents. But in this case, when you're being called into discipleship, it is a great deal. And I think that might sit a little bit weird on us because as, as Western Christians, we, I think, have this idea that like, the call of discipleship is, is way less intense than the call of public ministry. Right? Like we think like, okay, you're not a Christian, and then you get called into like, being a disciple. And then if you're one of those real intense Christians, you get called into public ministry. Right? I think that's how most of us think of it. What Jesus is saying is, no, 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 you're not a disciple. And then you get called into discipleship, and then some of you will become pastors or teachers or, or other sorts of called workers. The call of discipleship is far more intense, far more of a greater degree than the call into public ministry. And I think this makes sense when we start to think it out. Like, if you want to go into a certain sector of the workforce, you might get an education and do all sorts of work to learn the necessary skills, make all the necessary connections, and then get into that sector of the workforce. Once you're in there, though, you can kind of switch around your position, right? Where exactly you work in the company, what part of the sector you work in, that can be a pretty easy transition relatively to the initial work you put in to get into that sector in the first place. There's something analogous there in becoming a Christian and doing public ministry. Like, if I were to describe to you what I do in the most simple terms, I'm just a professional disciple of Jesus. Like, I do all the same things that I would do if I was not a pastor. I just have this little thing added on where I get to be your shepherd. But I would still be studying my scriptures. I would still be praying with my family and leading them in devotions. I would still be speaking about Jesus to people in my life. I would be doing all the same things that I do right now. I just have this little thing added on where I'm a pastor. So that's a challenge for us, right? And Jesus is challenging not just this man, but us also to think about what it means to be a disciple. Disciple is not just, okay, just this little step, this little change, this micro thing in my life. No, it is a macro level change in who I am, what I am dedicated to what I do with myself. He says that if you cannot focus 100%, if you you can look at the plow constantly, then you are not fit for the kingdom of God. His idea there is, if you are going to be a disciple, you have to be all in. This can't just be a thing you do. This can't just be something on the side. This can't just be part of your life. 
It has to be the thing that animates every moment, every thought, everything you do. And so those are the three interactions that Jesus has. Now let's make a couple applications from these. The first is Jesus' counterintuitive growth strategy. Uh, It is really interesting to me how Jesus approaches each of these conversations because I, I think it's not how we would approach these conversations if we were in Jesus' shoes. I mean, think first of this first man who comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Like, this is a guy who is excited. He seems like he is all in. Like, if we had a person walk in here on Sunday morning and they said, you know what, I absolutely love Cross of Life. I have been watching your things online and reading your things online, and I think you are just so faithful to God's word, and I want to be in this church, and I don't want to just be in this church. I want to be generous with my offerings and generous with my time and service to this congregation because I think you guys are great. That would be pretty cool, right? Like, we'd be talking about that for the rest of the week, and we would gladly welcome them in, right? Jesus doesn't. He throws a bucket of cold water on that guy and says, hold your horses, buddy. Why? Well, I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to be explicit about his expectations as possible. He's trying to be, in a sense, the anti-bait and switch. You understand a bait and switch? It's like putting out something that is easy and attractive and smooth for the sake of, after a person accepts that thing, giving them the hard truth giving them the challenge, if you will. And Jesus doesn't work that way. He starts off by saying, no, these are the expectations. They are high. They are that life is going to be suffering-filled, that discipleship in me is going to lead you down paths that you would not otherwise go down, that you're going to be uncomfortable, that you're going to have to work at this. If you think this is going to be all great all the time, always happy, and everything is going to be good, you're going to be disappointed. And he does the same thing with the other guys, right? These other guys are willing to follow him. But again, he says, no, let the dead bury their own dead. If you can't be 100% in with me, then don't come with me. So what does this mean for us? Does this mean when every person that visits Cross of Life comes in the door, I should go up to them and say, all right, but before you come in, I don't think that's the application because first of all, Jesus has this one really big advantage over me and the rest of us. He can read a person's heart. He knows what this person was about, and we don't intuitively, but but I think the application for us is if we're never talking this way, then we're missing the point. We're not speaking like Jesus. If we are never explicit about the expectations of what it means to be a disciple, then we are missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. We have to have high expectations. We have to have explicit expectations because that's what Jesus does. And I think once we play this out, it starts to make sense too. We think about this from a parenting point of view. Kids need expectations. They need boundaries. They need to know where the fences are, where they can't go. And for those of you who have raised kids, you know that they don't like that those boundaries are there, at least originally. They they rage against them and scream and yell and, and whatever, they tantrum. But those things are good for them. It has been proven time and time again that kids without boundaries do not turn out well. We need to know where are the expectations. And this is true in business, too. Um, What studies will show is that the the companies that retain their employees the best, have the happiest employees, and have the best output are companies that have high and explicit expectations of their employees. If they are clear and if they are high, employees will perform better and will enjoy performing better. Why? Because they believe that they're part of something that matters. 
Right? If they're just putting in eight hours just to get some pay that's not even that great for a company that doesn't seem like it's doing much good, they're just going to go through the motions to get some money so they can go to whatever they actually want to do. But a company that says, we have something important that we are driving at, and it's going to cost us, but it's worth it, those are the companies that see their employees happier and performing better. And so it is with Jesus and his church. High expectations. This is what it means to be a disciple. It's going to cost you. It's going to mean you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. But it's worth it because of what we are bringing to the world. Now, one last application of this specifically for Cross of Life, and that is um, that our leadership team has identified that we don't really do this that well. Like, we have expectations, but they're not explicit. Uh, We don't really tell people exactly what we expect, what Jesus expects, if you're going to be part of this congregation. And so uh, what our leadership team is moving towards over the next couple of months is making those expectations explicit so that we're all on the same page about what the Bible expects of Christians so we can encourage one another and hold one another accountable to those expectations. The expectations aren't changing. They've always been the same. We are going to say, okay, let's agree about what the expectations are so that I as a pastor and we as Christians together can say to each other, this is what it means to be a disciple. And of course, this high expectation is going to be accompanied by unlimited grace. You're not getting these expectations so we can figure out who to kick out and who to keep in and who's really productive so we can make sure to promote them. That's not how this works. But it is to say, if you're going to be a disciple, it means you have to be a disciple. It means you can't just take the name and not participate in the mission. So over the next couple of months, you'll see that rolled out. Um, all it is really is just taking what we already agree upon and just making sure we're all on the same page about that thing that we already agree upon. The second thing that I want to apply from this is the two kind of pitfalls that, that people have as they think about discipleship. And we see these in the characters that Jesus interacts with. Now, I'm getting this from another pastor, but I think it's really an insightful way of looking at this text. Um, the first of the people that Jesus interacts with and the last two people that Jesus interacts with have two very common problems that most people have when they interact with the idea of discipleship. So the first of those is what we might call idealism. This is embodied in the first man that Jesus interacts with. He comes in with this enthusiasm, this excitement. I am going to follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And of course, Jesus says, hold on. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It is a challenge for some people as they come into the church to be idealistic about the experience. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. It's going to be happy all the time. And they're disappointed because that's not discipleship. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. This can manifest itself in a couple of different ways. One way that it might manifest itself is the person who is surprised when sinfulness exists in a church. They kind of think, well, Christians are supposed to be these good people who follow the morals of Jesus Christ. And so generally, if I'm in a church, I'm going to be around people who are better than most. Except that's not the Christian church. If you're here and you've experienced other people sinning against you, that's a good sign because this church is trying to preach a message that sinners can be saved freely by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God died for them in order to forgive them of their sins because they are so wicked. But I've had it. I've had people in our church say, I can't believe that would happen in a Christian church, as if they're surprised that sinfulness exists in a place where sinners are being forgiven. 
It can also happen when we, we want to see certain results from the work that we put in, whether that work is personal, devotional work, uh, whether it's congregational, corporate work. We have some idea of what the results are supposed to be, and then the results don't meet our expectations. We become despondent, discouraged, because we put all that work in. We had this great plan. We had these grandiose goals, and no one showed up. My life didn't change. This is idealism, right? The kingdom of God's growth is like organic growth. It's like watching a tree grow. You don't see it grow every single day, but over time you see, oh, it has been growing. The same is true with a church and with a person. We grow organically, slowly, by word of God and repentance. Another way this might manifest itself is me thinking back to the first couple of years that I was here as your pastor. Right? Like we obviously went through some real challenges in the first couple of years that I was here as your pastor. And, and I think a lot of us really struggled with it and we were disappointed and we were frustrated and we were angry and we were hurt. But I wonder if that wasn't idealism a little bit. Like, you know what was happening for those first couple of years that I was the pastor at Cross of Life? God's word was being preached. God's sacraments were being administered. Jesus was still king. But we struggled because we kind of thought church is supposed to be happy. Church is supposed to be good. Church is supposed to be always okay rather than a place where sinful people gather around a savior who saves sinners. This is embodied in the first man, but the second two men give us another different way that people struggle with discipleship and we'll call that pragmatism. It's this idea of balancing who Jesus is in your life with everything else that's in your life. Right, so you think of the second man who says, yeah, Jesus, I want you, I'm going to follow you, but also my family. Right, the second man does something similar. We can be tempted to love Jesus. I mean, think about it. These two guys, they both call Jesus Lord, which we know is them acknowledging who Jesus is as the Messiah. We can know who Jesus is, but we want Jesus in his little compartment in our life rather than as the thing that runs our life. And again, how might this manifest itself? Well, I've, I've had conversations with some of you who have said things like, well, I'll start giving offerings when I get financially stable. Or, or I'll be glad to serve, but only in these certain ways that I like. Or uh, one person who I, I said, I will, I will move my entire schedule around to get you in a Bible study. And they said, no, I don't want to be in a Bible study. Do you understand how this happens? Like, we want Jesus, but we only want him at a certain level. We want him, but we also have these other things that are important to us. Now, in the case of these two men, it was family, because that was the thing back in their culture. Family actually did really come first. In our society today, family really doesn't come first. We say that to make ourselves feel good, but money and comfort come first in Western society. We move away from our families in order to get money. We move away from our families in order to get comfortable. Family doesn't come first for us, but that still should make us think about money and comfort. Does money and comfort lead us to say, yeah, Jesus, but I need these things? Jesus says, if that's your attitude, don't be my disciple. If you can't let those things be in my purview of what I can say something about, don't be my disciple. If those things are off limits to me, don't be my disciple. And that's hard. (laughs) That's challenging for us, right? Because we do want balance. In fact, balance is a really good way to live, except when it comes to Jesus. Because Jesus was not balanced in how much he loved you and how much he was willing to give up for you. Jesus didn't say, oh yeah, human beings and also. No, he said, I'm all in. Everything that I got, my very life, my righteousness for you for free. This is discipleship. 
And it's challenging, right? Once we start to work out what it means to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow, we say, wow, I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) Which is why you have to read this text in context. If you don't read the rest of chapter 9 and 10 with this text, it becomes an absolutely crushing text. You think to yourself, there's no way I could pull that stuff off. So read the rest of the chapter. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 28, you would read the story of the transfiguration. We didn't read it this year because we've read it in subsequent past years. Um, But what happens at the transfiguration is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain and he shows them all of his glory, everything that he is as God for just a few moments to prove who he is to them. And what happens next is a whole bunch of discipleship blunders. (laughs) Right after this text, the, the disciples try to drive out a demon but can't do it because they tried on their own power rather than Jesus' power. And the disciples hear about some other people who are driving out demons in Jesus' name, and they ask Jesus, hey, can we go stop those people? And Jesus rebukes them and says, no, anybody who's fighting for us is not against us. And then the disciples say, the Samaritans won't let us go through their land. Should we call down fire from heaven on those guys? And Jesus says, no. And then you get this text, right? Jesus has people who want to be his disciples, but they're not willing to be all in with him. Discipleship blunder after discipleship blunder after discipleship blunder. And then chapter 10 comes, and Jesus sends out people in ministry. This is not a good business plan. (laughs) If you have people who are failing and failing and failing and failing, you don't put more responsibility on them, but Jesus does. Why? Because he is God and it's about him and not about you. If you think that being a disciple is the thing that defines your Christianity, you are missing the point because what defines who you are as a Christian is Jesus. The transfiguration, God's glory is what defines you as a Christian. God has died for you. He has risen again. He is coming back to bring you home. The disciples saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration and it should have motivated them and it did. They became really zealous and continued to mess it up. And Jesus still called them into ministry which should lead you to learn a couple things. First of all, this doesn't depend on you. This is God's work, not yours. You are saved. You are free. You are paid for because of the work of Jesus. You are not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And so the first question you have to ask yourself is, is he worth it? Is he worth it? The glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration led them to say, yeah, he's worth it. The glory that you see with the empty tomb should lead every one of us to say, yeah, he's worth it. And then, when you fail time and time and time again to count the cost, to be a disciple, know this, Jesus still sends you out. He still sends you out. He says, go be my apostle, my sent one to preach the gospel. Because it's not about you, it's about me. And so if you think about your discipleship, think less about yourself and think more about Jesus. When we think about discipleship, we tend to think about ourselves. How do I behave? How do I change things? What do I prioritize? How do I mess with my schedule or my finances or my energy or whatever? There's a space for that. But it has to start with Jesus. It has to start with us seeing how worth it Jesus is. If he's only a little bit worth it, our discipleship will match that. But if he is worth our life, then our life will be less, there will be no, no major price to pay to follow him. So let's ask God to make this discipleship happen among us. That as we see the expectations of the discipleship, we willingly try to fall in line with them. 
because we know the one who has died and was raised for us. Let's pray. Jesus, make your gospel more clear to us so that our discipleship reflects the great message that you have given us, that we are saved and forgiven in you. And then help us to have high expectations for ourselves and each other, that we would be a people who are set apart, who are different, who are willing to count the cost and pay the cost because of how much you are worth to us. And then give us unlimited grace for the times that we fail and the times that we fail each other. And we understand that our discipleship is not the metric by which to measure ourselves, but the cross is the way we measure ourselves. We ask those things in your name. Amen.